Welcome, everybody, back to another episode of the Ramos Law Difference Makers podcast, where I have an amazing opportunity. I get to meet people, visit with them, get to know them. And these folks are making a difference. They're doing things that are so cool, so unique. They're doing massive contributions in one way or another to society. And today is no exception. I am so happy and so honored to have our guest on. His name is Ernie Bjorkman. And if you are a Colorado native, if you've been here for any amount of time, you know the name. And it's cool because I'm going to read this. This is something that I, I wrote down so I wouldn't mess it up. <laughs> he was called the Dean of News Anchors. Ernie, the wow. Dean of freaking News Anchors. That, and, that means uh, I'm old. I'm old. That's what that means. <laughs> it means you're awesome and you got high quality. And so when I was looking at this, we can talk about this more. But two Emmys, also an Associated Press and Sigma, Sigma Delta Chi Journalism Award. So yeah. those are huge honors. And, and so, Ernie, oh, I yeah. can't thank you enough for taking time to, to join the show. Thanks for coming. Um, my pleasure, Jim. Thank you very much for having me. Too bad. Uh, well, podcasts are, have always been virtual. But, you know, in this day and age of COVID, this is how most of the meetings are being conducted now. So uh, I, my pleasure to be with you. Well, I appreciate it. And I know you love some of the same things I love. We're going to get into a little bit of that on, mm -hmm. on how your career has gone. But before we do, would you just let the audience know a little bit about yourself? And, you know, okay. you don't have to go too big of a deep dive, but just share how you got into TV and sure. you know, just a little background because your story yeah. is just so fascinating. Well, uh, I start out by saying that um, it hasn't been always rosy for me. I lost both of my parents by the time I was a senior in high school. My dad died when I was in grade school from a heart attack. My mom died from breast cancer when I was a senior in high school. Uh, so my mom and I were kind of scraping by. And so I always had a little job here and there. So my senior year in high school, I, I grew up in St. Augustine, Florida, just below Jacksonville. And they, we have a place there. It's still there. It's called um, Marine Land. And it was one of the original SeaWorld kind of things. And so I went down to apply for a job because I needed the money. And the only position they had open was an announcer. And I said, well, what, what does an announcer do at Marineland? They said, well, you put on a little sailor suit and you learn this script and you take people who paid good money to come and see the dolphins perform and the whales perform. So I said, I could do that. So I studied the script and I had a wonderful, wonderful summer uh, announcing to the in live audience uh, all the dolphins and the whales and things like that. <laughs> so when I got to... I went to a Catholic high school and uh, the Sisters of St. Joseph ran it and they just had opened up a junior college down uh, West Palm Beach, well, Jensen Beach, Florida by Stewart. So they gave me a full scholarship since I was basically an orphan at the time. They gave me a scholarship and I went down there and I talked to a counselor and, and he says, what would you like to do? And I said, I don't know. I said, but you know, I, I enjoyed, I enjoyed the heck out of Marine land talking to people and, and the whales would do certain tricks that I could trick the audience and, you know, I'd, I'd say, you know, back up, they're going to splash you and the whale would come down and try to splash me. And so I enjoyed the interaction. So he's, he, he was very prophetic. He said, first of all, you could try to be an actor, but that probably won't work. Second of all, he said, <laughs> and this was 1970, 19, I graduated in 68. So yeah, this was 1968, 69. He said, I think local television news may be your avenue. He said, if you like to be with people or in front of people, even though I don't see people when I'm talking to the camera, he said, I think that's a good avenue for you. So I did all my kind of liberal arts thing in junior college. Then I went on to the University of Florida that has a wonderful telecommunications school. And uh, lo and behold, I graduated with a bachelor's degree in um, broadcast journalism and got my first job in West Palm Beach back in 1972. And talk about archaic. Uh, 
I mean, we have come light years in the TV industry. I mean, I was working out of a trailer. Uh, we shot our own. Back then it was film. It wasn't video or digital. And we had to process the film. We had to hot glue it together to splice it. And I tell you, we, as I said, we've come light years from that. So anyway, so I got my first job in West Palm Beach, kind of learned the ropes. And then I got my big break. Um, I got a job in Atlanta, Georgia, which was a big market at the time back in uh, 76. And I followed Jimmy Carter to the White House and then uh, exclusively reported on the Atlanta child murders, uh, late 70s, early 80s, where a guy named Wayne Williams was finally convicted of killing these young black boys. And it's been on documentaries now and things like that. Turns out Wayne was an employee of ours at the TV station. He was the overnight photographer. And um, he he'd come in in the morning and sell his video or film, you know, of car accidents and murder scenes and things like that. So turns out he was the guy who they arrested finally. And I'll never forget um, standing in front of his house when they were leading him out. He looks at me and goes, "Hi, Ernie." I went, "Oh my God, here's a what? guy named Wayne." Yeah, a guy named Wayne Williams. You know, knew us uh, really well from working with us. But he was the one supposedly who killed all these young boys. They convicted him of two. Uh, but there was a host of others. And so that came to an end. So anyway, so, uh, then one day a talent agent came through the newsroom. She was representing a, uh, Atlanta Falcons place kicker named Tim Mazzetti. His story is unique. He's a, yeah, he was a bartender from Philadelphia and he tried out and he made it anyway. So he would come on our newscasts on Monday nights and talk about the game the day before. She was looking around the newsroom. She said, you know, and this was, again, 70, well, this was 80 or 81, uh, really before the talent agents got involved in news. But she came to me and she said, you know, I'm just starting out and I represent Tim Mazzetti, the place kicker. She said, but now I'm looking to expand and, and hire um, local reporters and possible anchors to see if I could get them any higher than they are now. And I said, I'll, I'll, I'll bite. So we made an audition tape. Then the next thing I knew, I'm being flown out to Denver. I had never been west of the Mississippi. She said Denver, and I said, wow, Aspen, you know, mountains and John Denver. <laughs> and so I, I landed in Denver, uh, got the job at Channel 7. I was a reporter and uh, the midday news anchor. Uh, and so I did that, and then I stayed there four years, and then I went to Channel 2, the news director over Channel 2, who had the 9 o'clock newscast, a half hour said, would you like to be our main anchor and managing editor, which who can kind of controls the content of the news? So I said, I'd love to. So I jumped over to Channel 2. So four years later, a new news director at Channel 7 saw me and said, would you like to come back to Channel 7 <laughs> and co-anchor with Bertha Lynn and Aunt Rahio? And, and it was a lot more money. And I said, sure. So I went back to Channel 7. So then uh, Channel 7 um, made some my opinion in my opinion made some crazy moves they hired a lady named natalie Pujol. it was stand up it was real glitzy and and so bertha and i were kind of put under the rug and thrown under the bus so so now uh, the guy who i kind of brought up at channel two is the assignment editor now he was news director and he saw what was happening to us over at channel 70 so would you like to come back i said sure so basically i made a, a almost 40-year career at, in denver uh, at just two stations channel seven and channel two so then, uh, I, I know I'm, I'm kind of getting long-winded here, but uh, everything You're was fine. going fine. Everything was going fine. We did a, a great nine, nine o'clock newscast against the others. Uh, but then Fox came along and started doing a nine o'clock newscast back in 2001. And so we were competing 
Well, right after the uh, Democratic National Convention in Denver 2008, where Obama was nominated, uh, we learned that our station was now going to be merged with Fox 31. And I went, uh-oh, that, that means trouble. And it did. Um, early 2009, uh, we got our walking papers. Basically, they canceled our newscast because they didn't want you know, two stations that they now own together competing against each other. So, so basically, I, I went from a six-figure salary down to I had gone back to school in the meantime, not knowing that I was going to be laid off, but I had gone back to school to become a veterinarian technician. I love animals, and that's what I wanted to do in my later life. I knew I didn't have time to become a veterinarian, so I became a vet tech. Well, lo and behold, now I'm laid off. I go from a six-figure salary down to like 13 bucks an hour. And I'll never forget, it was the time of the recession, 2008, 2009. And suddenly, uh, Dusty Saunders with the Rocky Mountain News, yeah, the Rocky Mountain News, when it was in existence, did a story on me and how I, my plan B was to be a veterinarian technician. And luckily I had because I had something to fall back on. Meanwhile, all the thousands and thousands of people around the country being laid off in this recession. So um, long story short, uh, the New York Times picks up on that story. And, and a guy named Brian Setzer, who's now on CNN, he wanted to do a story on all these older news anchors who were being laid off because, quote, they were making too much money in this recession. So he came to Denver and did a story with me, and I was kind of like the point of this whole story. And so from there, uh, 2020 on ABC sees that report and wants to do a story on me as, as, as the person or the example of in the news media, people are getting laid off because of all this. So they came out and followed me for a week my last week at Channel 2, and uh, you know, it was the day after Sully put the plane down in the Hudson River, I'll never forget. It, this show on 2020 aired with Elizabeth Vargas, and so from there, <laughs> Ellen DeGeneres gives me a call. She says, I saw your report on 2020, and we love animals, me and Portia, and we'd love you to come on my show. So next thing I know, it's February of 2009, I'm flown out to LA, I'm on Ellen's show. And, and then it, after that, I'm on a couple of CNN media shows on the weekends and things like talking about the recession and people getting laid off. And lo and behold, uh, April of 2009, I get a call and it's Oprah Winfrey on the phone. She says, Ernie? I said, yeah. She says, this is Oprah Winfrey. And I recognize her voice. I knew it was sort of prank. She said, would you come on our show? We're doing a story about not just the media, but all factions of or all factors of people in in." America who are going through the same thing you're going through and you'll be a little segment. So I was flown to um, the Oprah show in May. We taped it. And uh, so anyway, so I got more publicity being laid off than I did <laughs> when I was a newscaster. So, uh, so uh, I'll keep going. So I get, I get on that and I become a vet tech and I'm, I'm working. Uh, but, you know, reality set in. I had two houses that I lost because of foreclosure. Uh, I couldn't sell them in the, in the recession. So I lost those. I got a divorce over all that. And so I'm, I'm going along and now I start picking up some freelance jobs with dental companies and things like that. And I meet a new beautiful woman who's now my wife of 10 years. And uh, so we're, we're sitting around in Boulder one day and uh, she says, we should travel. And I said, yeah, but I said, I'd like to travel with a purpose. So just fate would have it that we got this random email that says we're having a Peace Corps over 50 seminar at CU Boulder. 
And so my wife, I remember we had dinner plans that night with some friends. We called them and said, we can't make it. We went over, heard the seminar, fell in love with the Peace Corps. And so at the age of 58, um, my wife and I go off to Ethiopia <laughs> in the Peace Corps. Uh, but they had such a communist-like government over there. I couldn't teach journalism because it was all state-run and a lot of propaganda. So they put my wife and, my wife and I in agriculture, which, you know, I knew how to plant a pot of flowers outside but nothing you know so here i'm teaching we're teaching these women how to grow per permanent gardens that uh weren't washed away during the rainy season and so we were teaching that and then suddenly uh the ethiopian government comes to the peace corps there in ethiopia and says we're really suspicious there's these two older people with in a group of 60 and everybody else is right out of college uh so Long story short, they thought we were spies for the CIA. So, oh, what? Uh, yes, they thought we were spies. So, um, at one point, we were going along just fine, and suddenly uh, they came up. The government came up with a plan to expand 50 miles out in a radius around Addis Ababa, the, the capital, to build more stuff, more high rises that they couldn't even provide electricity for, but they wanted to build high rises. So they wanted to take these farmers' property. And so these kids started protesting one day in the village next to ours, and the military came in and shot them, killed 20-something kids who were protesting. And so that's when Peace Corps came to us in the U.S. Embassy and said, uh, you, you could be next, so we're going to get you out of here. So they, they took my wife back to Addis Ababa and sequestered us for two weeks in a hotel. And then it was something out of the movie Argo. We got a call at midnight going, we've got a plane for you to leave the country at three in the morning. So... Here we are. We're, we're out of Ethiopia after a year of service. We were supposed to serve two years and uh, landed. Luckily, I had a cousin in London. So we landed there and um, she, uh, you know, gave us a great time. And we went from primitive, primitive conditions, going to the bathroom in a hole in the ground <laughs> to a beautiful place in London. And then we came back to the United States. And I said, what do you want to do, honey? And she goes, well, you know, you, you grew up in St. Augustine. Let's live on the beach for a little while. So we bought a houseboat. <laughs> we lived for two weeks, two years on a houseboat. And in the meantime, we kept seeing all these. Um, I know I'm not letting you talk at all, Jim. I'm sorry. <laughs> oh, no. Listen, uh, okay. I'm, I'm taking notes. There's so many follow-ups. I, I asked for okay. your story, and it's not yeah. been all rosy like you said. This is great. No, no. So anyway, so during the two years we were in Florida on a houseboat, we kept seeing all these billboards, uh, you know, people playing tennis and playing golf for these 55 plus communities. So we said we could do that. So we signed up with a modeling agency in Jacksonville and lo and behold, we got, we got jobs. We were on billboards, we were in magazines. And to this day, people still send us pictures of us, you know, for something, life insurance or uh, 55 plus community in St. Simons Island, Georgia, things like that. So we did that. And then out of the blue, I am, fishing one day off the boat and I get a call from a fellow colleague, former fellow colleague, Dan Daru at Channel 2 and says, you're not going to believe this, but the lady who's now our news director, used to, her and her mom used to watch you and love you and thought you really got a crappy deal when everything went down with the merger. She said, uh, so call her because I think she may want you to come back. And this is like, you know, four years ago, 2017. And uh, I said, okay. So I called and her name is Holly Gaunt and we talked and she says, would you, Tom Green was leaving the morning show after 15 years as a host. And she says, would you consider coming back and anchoring with Natalie Tisdale, the morning news for a couple of years? I said, sure. So we sold the houseboat, moved back to Denver 
And uh, for two years, I did the morning news with Natalie. Loved it. Uh, but the hours just killed me. You know, I mean, you had to get up at 2.30 in the morning and look bright and shiny at 4.30 when you went on the news. And we had to do four and a half hours of news at Channel 2. So anyway, so the two years ended. And then my wife says, what do you want to do now? <laughs> I said, well, I've, I'd always come to Grand Lake, Colorado uh, over the years since the 80s. I had a little place up here. I was a weekender. I said, well, why don't we move back to Grand Lake? She had been up here, too, and fell in love with it. So we came up here. We bought a little condo. And uh, suddenly, uh, there was four openings on the town council. And I said, you know, I've never been in politics, but um, people thought I was crazy. But I said, I want to run. I said, I want to, you know, now that I've got the time, I want to give back to Grand Lake over the many years I've been here. And so I ran, and I won. And so now I'm an official town council person here in Grand Lake. I'm also on the planning commission. And um, I'm also part of a private group that has set up a relief fund for all the businesses up and down uh, Grand Lake here at Main Street. Not only did we go through COVID, but then we had the East Troublesome Fire in October where our friends, we lost 300-some homes, uh, devastated west of town. Luckily, the town itself was spared. So we've raised enough money privately to where we're handing out uh, rent money, mortgage money, utilities per month to these businesses just to keep them afloat. Hopefully until when the summer kicks in after Memorial Day, they'll get back on their feet again with all the tourists. But um, so anyway, so uh, that was in April. Uh, so rewarding. I mean, you know, we've had our ups and downs. We've had our debates on city council, but that's what democracy is all about. You win some, you lose some. Uh, but I'm having a blast. So in the meantime, uh, Jim, as you know, I love to fly fish. I, I'm ice fishing uh, until the ice melts. I uh, love to play golf up here. So. So that's kind of like the end of the story, so to speak. Who knows well, what's no, going to... Listen, that, that is a, a brilliant story. And like I had shared at the very beginning, that your story was inspirational and amazing and unique. And so I'm glad that you went through the whole thing because now yeah. I want to kind of unpack those, sure. uh, a few of those key pieces. Because again, in the meantime, you, you found something that you love to do early with the dolphins, right? And yes. being able to have that connection with the animals and the people right then that took you where someone says well maybe you should get in front of a, a news camera i don't know how many people say that as advisors anymore you know yeah if, if no, that's he, an advice it's weird like i said he was very prophetic he he knew that local news was really going to take off and this was back in the 70s and boy it did i mean by the time i ended it here i went from shooting film in a little bell and how camera to being able to hook up a satellite dish on top of a truck and broadcasting anywhere in the world. So we have come light years, light years from when I first started, so. If someone, Ernie, today wanted to be in um, TV or as some sort of a, a personality on camera, mm -hmm. on air talent, would you have any advice for them? Because you know, people listening, yeah. they, there's all kinds of things, but many people say, well, I couldn't do that and I don't know this and I don't know that. What would you say after having come through all you've come through and seen the, the changes that we have now? Yeah. Well, first of all, I say you have to be curious about the world. You have to be curious about people, their stories. Uh, so I would say, um, and unfortunately, we've gotten away from this. I've met many people along the way in, in our business that weren't formally trained as broadcast journalists or even newspaper journalists. Uh, so I would still recommend for somebody uh, when, when they go to college to uh, major in telecommunications broadcasters, you just learn the foundation of things like law, what you can say, what you can't say. Then you get excellent opportunities to work. Usually the big universities have in-house studios where you can do your own news, little newscast. And then the first thing I tell uh, people who are doing that 
uh, is to get internships, learn as much as you can, experience as you can in, in a, a real station, usually in one of the cities where the universities are, they, they have internship programs. So by the time you graduate, you don't have to be trained that much. So you can get into that first job and, and hit the streets running. Uh, and then I, going back to my old journalism days, it's certainly changed. You know, when I first started, we had three stations, ABC, NBC, CBS. So we were fighting for three pieces of the pie. Now you've got what, 500 stations, you've got CN, you've got all these 24 hour cable news stations. And to me, the whole thing has gone downhill. <laughs> Sorry, that's my opinion. There's so much bias on either side. You know, when I did, and I still, I still support local journalism. I said, if you watch a local newscast, wherever you are, it's going to be mainly unbiased. You're not being told what to say, what not to say. When you get to the CNNs and the Foxes and things like that, that's they know they want to get a certain audience, so they they slant it in that way. But from the old time journalism school, you reported the facts, you let people decide for themselves. You didn't give opinion, you didn't do commentary, you didn't smile, uh, you didn't you know say this or that that was derogatory. You just presented the facts and and left it at that. Unfortunately, today that's not the way it is. But um, yeah. so anyway, so so my my, you know, always suggestion to students who always talk to me, I say get a journalism degree, get as much experience as you can, either in the studio there at the station at the university or intern at a real life station in one of the cities that you're in, and then go from there. And and you're going to have to start small. You're not going to get hired by New York or Denver or L.A. You got to start small. Usually, like I started West Palm Beach, Florida, at the time was small. You know, working out of a trailer, making like sixty bucks a week. So I tell people, don't. You're not going for the stars immediately. You're gonna, if you're good, you're gonna work your way up. Uh, so start and how small. How did you practice your yeah. craft? Or sorry to interrupt. How, how did you no. practice your craft to become good enough to take that next step? I know there had to be probably more than just the reps. Did you do anything that you would look at that our listeners could take, regardless of whether they're doing? video or not to say, you know, this is how yeah. I would monitor it and get better and make sure that I kept progressing in, in right. my talents and anything well, that you did as a habit. The first thing I did was uh, back in the day before all the social media, uh, I read as many newspapers as I could. I, I, I was trying to keep it informed about a lot of things because one day you're interviewing President Reagan back in the day or President Clinton or Bush. Next day, you're talking to a local school teacher about uh, the school system and things like that. So you try to, I try to keep abreast of everything. Uh, and again, it's a lot easier now with social media, probably a lot harder though, with all the false information out there. So anyway, so that was it. And then, you know, I would practice. I would have the camera guy stay on um, an hour or so after the newscast and record me and, you know, reading the teleprompter and looking natural. And so I honed that craft of being on camera in front of it. And that's the big thing, Jim, is, you know, back in Marine Land days, there was real people sitting in the bleachers watching the dolphins jump and watching me talk. On TV, you're looking into a black hole. You're reading a teleprompter that's in front of the camera, but you're looking into a black hole and you know that there's thousands of, of people watching you, but you can't relate to them because you can't see them. So you, I always kind of had a Joe Sixpack in my mind, a, a guy who just came home from work, cracked a beer open, sitting down, and he wants to know what happened in Denver that day. So I always related my stories and, and wrote my stories and, and tried to talk to Joe Sixpack. And, and so I think that helped me 
progress along the way and look natural and natural and natural. And even today, I'm doing freelance stuff for certain companies, and I have to read a teleprompter, and they love me because I, I know how to read a teleprompter and not like stare, and uh, I look natural. So, so yeah, so I practice a lot. I practice a lot, but over the years, it, be it becomes ingrained in you. Uh, and so over the years, it, it's not as hard as it was in the very beginning. Well, you know what? It, and it sure did come across natural. I watched many, many broadcasts, and it was, it was beautiful. And, I, you know, with all the stories you've done, are there any – you've done thousands and thousands. Are there any inspirational stories, stories of just overcoming that, that just moved your heart and made you feel like there's so many amazing people and things in this world that you'd like to share? Yeah, well, I'll start with President, the, the original President Bush, H.W., I think it was. Um, here he is president, and he's running against President Clinton. I mean, uh, Governor Clinton at the time. It was 1992, and they're lagging in the polls, so they're inviting local anchors to come on board Air Force One and do an interview with President Bush. And I get the honor of being asked from Denver, so I'd love to. So uh, I, we fly to Detroit. And we pick up Air Force One in Detroit with President Bush. And along the way, we were told that we have 10 minutes max interview time with him in the office there on Air Force One. So we stopped in Sioux City, Iowa. And I'll never forget. And he was doing a campaign stop. It was like in the big barn out in the farmer's field. It was hot. It, was, it must have been 100 degrees. This was September or October. It must have been 100 degrees. And he was sweating. And so he comes back on board Air Force One, and I'm next to be interviewed, to interview the president. I'm going, oh, my God. I said, this guy is just depleted, man. He's, he's going to take a shower, and he's going to cancel, blah, blah, blah. So, uh, you know, about a half hour later, while taking off, uh, Marlon Fitzwater, who was the PR guy, the press secretary, says, Ernie, we're, you're up. I said, okay. So I go to the front of the plane and go into the presidential office that they have on the plane, and He's there, and we shake hands, and we just start talking before the cameras roll. And I, I tell him that I was friends with his son, Neil Bush, who lived in Denver, and we played golf together. And uh, so, so next thing I know, uh, somebody's bringing me a sleeve of White House emb embossed uh, golf balls. And so we do the interview. And so I go, well, I, I guess that's it, huh? And he goes, no. He said, let me show you around the plane. Said, sure. So he tells Marlon, he says, Marlon, he said, uh, you know, delay all the other interviews. I want to show Ernie around the plane. And so, so here he takes me up to the nose of the plane where the bedroom is. He said, yeah, this is where me and my wife, we, you know, sleep. And, oh, it's terrible mattress. Blah, blah, blah. So, so then we go upstairs to the cockpit and he shows me, we couldn't bring the camera, but he shows me, you know, all the security stuff and, and all these F-16s following us. And then he takes me down and shows me, he said, this is an empty room, but uh, guess what it can be? And I said, what? And he says, this can be an operating room. He says, we always have surgeons on board. If a president has a heart attack or whatever, we can do, we can do surgery right here. Anyway, so he, he takes about a half hour of his time showing me around. And then he says, do you drink? And I said, well, I like a cocktail every once in a while. And he goes, what do you have? And I told him, Jack Daniels and water. That's my favorite cocktail. <laughs> so here we are sitting on the couch on the kind of outside his office there against the side of the plane having a drink and here i have me and the president and suddenly jim baker the secretary of state comes over he says mr president we have, i have a little question about russia something happened or 
it's always Russia. <laughs> so, so anyway, so I said, Miss President, I'll, I'll see you. No, 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 Ernie, you stay here and finish your drink. He said, you know, everything's off the record. So here I am listening to Jim Baker and President Bush talk about something that Russia did or didn't do or something. And I'm going, this is unbelievable. And so, so then he goes, he says, well, we're going to land in Denver. He says, would you like to walk off? you know, just behind me, uh, you know, on the stairs. I said, I'd love to. <laughs> so so we, we land in Denver and I, he goes down the stairs and I'm, you know, a couple of people behind him and people, hey, there's Ernie from channel seven or two. I forget, uh, channel seven. And so anyway, so he, here he is president. And I told his staff, I said, I know he's lagging in the polls, but I said, he just showed me something today that no matter how big you are, how strong you are politically or anything else, what position you hold, you can always take time to be friendly. And boy, I'll, I'll never forget that. I, I've got a picture with him. I've got a mm. poster that says I've flown on Air Force One. So that's that's my inspirational story. And I always remember that because I always remember where I came from, being an orphan. And so I don't care if somebody was a janitor or somebody was the president of the United States. I always took time always listen to them because I just love people. And again, I don't care who you are, where you are, what color you are, people are people. And, and there's always an inspirational story out there. And so anyway, so I, I you know, there's, there was many more, but I remember president Bush being so kind to me and so friendly and I'll never forget that. That is incredible. <laughs> that gave me chills yeah. hearing about yeah. that. There has to be, there has to be so many. And you know, you, as you were telling your story at the beginning, you mentioned a lot like they, someone asked this and you said yes, and someone asked that and you said, of course, and someone said, would you? And you said, yes. I'm interested because there are two camps on this that, and I happen to fall in the same one you do, that I, I say yes at every opportunity because I don't know what I'll learn, what I'll give, and what next opportunity will come. There are other people that get to a point where they say, if I don't say no, then I can't get the most important things in life done. Yes. And I think there's a balance there. What did there's you a balance. go for? Did you go the wet, the yes, or did it go to eventually well, you had to say no? How did that work? Yeah, I did a lot of yeses. And because of my position in the news business, being an anchor and influential, uh, I would get calls every week to MC a charity event. Um, every week. And I, and I gladly did it because I'd love to help all these organizations. But after a while, I, I did have to start saying no because my weekends were shot. You know, I, I couldn't relax on a Saturday because I had to be up Saturday night in front of a big audience emceeing something. So, and, and to balance my life, I had to start saying no to some people. I hated it, but I did. So uh, I, I learned to balance things, uh, saying yes a lot. Uh, you know, just for example, now in Grand Lake, you know, I said, yeah, I'll be on the planning commission. And yes, I'm on the creative district commission. And yes, I'll, I'll help start up this relief fund. Uh, so I'm doing a lot as I did back then. But uh, there's a time when, you know, I can't attend another meeting. You know, I'm zoomed out. <laughs> so yes. so I, think the, I think with age, people learn to start selectively saying no and picking and choosing what you want to do and what you don't want to do. That is so valuable. I think that advice yeah. is valuable because I've shared it with the young folks that have asked me about questions like, listen, you don't know what you don't know until you try something. So say yes to every opportunity and don't do yes, anything exactly. beneath you. And then you'll, there'll come a time where you'll get to or have to say no, but in the meantime, say yes. Oh, yeah. And you know, one feature that you did that I, I was reading about that I'm fascinated to hear about was this thing that you did called trading places yes. as part of the, <laughs> the, what you did. So can you explain what that was and just give a couple of yeah. cool examples of that? Cause so fascinating, so cool. 
Well, again, going back to my kind of simple uh, roots, uh, there's a lot of jobs out there that people don't appreciate that people do. And so I said, I'm going to do a series of, I'm going to train trade places. I'm going to let them sit in the studio and, and maybe read a few lines on the teleprompter, but I want to do their job. I was a trash collector. I was a dog catcher. Uh, I was a, a, a donut maker at Krispy Kreme. I was, uh, what else was I? Oh, I was a, a teacher in a nursery school, a preschool nursery school. Uh, so things like that. I just, and then we did, I did a story on that, me being that person. And it was very enlightening, very uplifting. And I hope that people who watched the shows uh, got a sense of how important those people, even the dog catcher, you know, treating animals and catching them and, and helping the communities uh, to even making the, the perfect donut for Krispy Kreme. Uh, it, it was an eye-opening experience, and I, I, I got a lot of great reaction from it. And, uh, you know, the garbage guys and the trash guys, I should say, and, and things like and, and how hard teachers have to work in preschool. And I, I can't imagine right now, especially with this COVID thing going on, Zoom, Zooming elementary schools, kids. No way. Uh, to pay attention to uh, their, their homework or their work. So, so anyway, so that was Trading Places, and I, and I just loved it. I, I would have kept going, but uh, something ended it. I forgot what, but I, I must have done about 10 or 15 stories about trade. I'd, I'd put on, you know, the trash uniform. I'd put on uh, the Krispy Kreme hat and things like that. So, so it was fun. It was really fun. And again, again, I met so many great people and those people would call and say, thank you so much for doing that, showing that, you know, kind of like now with, you know, the uh, frontline people, you know, working with yes. COVID patients, things like people don't really know what they're going through until they see it. So, so that was a wonderful series I did. And uh, uh, I loved it immensely. I loved it too. And you know what? I think you probably inspired Mike Rowe in Dirty Jobs. That's what I'm going with. <laughs> there you That's go. I'm going I'll, with. I'll, I'll, I'll put the hat on that one and say, yeah, I did, Mike. Uh, so, uh, <laughs> We're going to have Mike give you a little royalty. There you go. <laughs> They're still there playing that show. <laughs> hey, what about, you know, with, with I'm, I did not know this part where when you went to go serve overseas that you were seen as a spy, a potential yeah. spy. Like, how did that come down were you guys you were obviously in well, danger yeah. like go on that a little bit well like i said when we joined up because there were peace corps at the time was and they still are when they go back into service uh looking for people 50 plus who have had life experiences and are maybe now retiring or retired and want to give back some of their experience so uh so my wife and i joined the peace corps and by the time we were selected to go to ethiopia we were one of 60 people two of 60 people, but we were in our late 50s, early 60s, and everybody else was right out of college. So everybody else was, you know, 21, 22. And so we get over there and, and they're still going through some bad civil war right now with a lot of political dissent and things like that. But at the time, um, again, they were very censorship of media. Uh, when we first got there, they said, don't, Peace Corps said, don't put anything on Facebook negative about the government you'll get arrested so that the government was really one-sided government and um so anyway so a couple of times the u.s embassy guys would come to our little hovel that we um lived in in uh, outside of Addis Ababa and said you know we're getting hints that uh here you guys are you're they knew we were journalists my wife is also a newspaper reporter they knew we were journalists retired journalists and they don't understand why you're in agriculture teaching women over here who've been gardening for thousands of years 
teaching them how to make <laughs> gardens. So the suspicion immediately rose that here we are journalists in a country that's really trying to, you know, tromp down on free journalism, free speech. And so immediately they thought something's up. These guys are not over here because they want to be here and not teaching women how to build gardens because they want to. So, so that was the first hint. And then when about a year into the service, uh, the government started arresting Ethiopian journalists for being critical of their government. They called them terrorists. And so then after the massacre in our next village, that's when the embassy and uh, the Peace Corps said, all right, we're going to take their threats seriously, that they think you're spies, and if they arrest you, we'll never, A, never be able to find you, and B, if we find you, uh, we can't get you out of the jail, but you know we can try to make it as comfortable as possible. So we didn't need any more persuasion. We said, all right, pack no. us up, get us out of here. And I'll never forget when we took off from Ethiopia, kind of like the Argo movie, you know, we kissed the ground, we kissed the airplane's floor when we took off because we knew we were out of the country and out of danger, basically. But, but the, the year we had there was unbelievable. A beautiful country, really poor people, uh, but beautiful people. In fact, Denver has a big population of Ethiopians, and we, we got to love their food and their culture. Uh, but uh, unfortunately, they're you know, under the oppression of a one-sided government, and they still are. And, and there's been bombings over there now. There's been civil war. So, mm -hmm. so anyway, so that's that's that was why they thought we were spies because we were journalists, but we're teaching women how to, do, you know, make gardens. Well, I'm sure you had to have learned some deep appreciation and values about who we are. Even in our worst day, at least at the time being, we're so much better off than so oh. many other people. I'll bet the gratitude that you had, the sense oh. of thankfulness, it had to be overwhelming almost. Yeah. Well, you know, when we first got there, they said, uh, we would advise you not to go out at night. And we said, yeah, we're in our 50s. Don't tell us we can't go out at night. Well, we find <laughs> out that our little village is surrounded by hyenas. And so after dark, you know, an Ethiopian would get picked off every once in a while by the pack of hyenas. And so uh, one night we're walking around and suddenly we see this pack of hyenas. We go, now we know why we shouldn't be out after dark. <laughs> so we went back to our little hovel of a place. Uh, we had to sleep under a mosquito net because of malaria. Uh, and, and I'll never forget our bathroom was a little hole in the ground. And yeah, so when we got to London, my cousin's house, Again, we kissed the ground. We had a toilet that worked. We had food on the table all the time. Uh, again, back there, and we, we shared our little uh, bedroom with a family that kind of adopted us as a Peace Corps volunteer. And every night about five o'clock, the electricity would go off, the water would go out, and they would say, Chigger Yellum. And I said, what does that mean? No problem. It'll, it'll come back on. <laughs> and we found out real quick that there was not an Excel Energy or a any kind of utility company you could call and say, we don't have any power, we don't have any water. There, you know, we were two, two hours out in, the, out in the jungle, so to speak. So there's nothing, the, the government doesn't help those people. You know, you, you, your electricity goes out, your electricity goes out, you light a candle. So you get appreciation for the conveniences that we here in the United States and, and the free world have uh, compared to, you know, but the, the, the wonderful thing is, you know, there was, Kids were roaming the streets. They were playing after dark. There was no sex predators, no crime. Uh, so they lived a very, very simple life. They, a soccer ball was was a bunch of trash wrapped with uh, um, duct tape, and that was their soccer wow. ball. Yeah. And and I kept saying, I said, um, we should bring them soccer balls. They said, yeah, but they get punctured after the second day, and they don't have pumps to pump them up again. Uh, 
all these nonprofit agencies would bring over laptop computers, which was wonderful, but they'd A, run out of batteries. They didn't have electricity to, or they'd break and they had no way to fix them. Uh, the greatest story, and they taught us real well, uh, a group of Peace Corps people came to a, a village in Africa by a lake and they said, you need to eat more fruit and vegetables, so we're gonna grow apple trees by the lake. And the natives said, no, 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 no apples. Well, yeah, we're gonna, we're gonna make you, your lives better. We're gonna grow apple trees. <laughs> so the apples started ripening and then and day of picking, they go out there and there's no apples. Well, turns out the hippopotamus, hippopotami, whatever, who lived in the lake, as soon as the apples were ripe, they all came out, ate all the apples off the tree. And that's they love the natives, the natives were trying to tell the Peace Corps people, no, you know, they won't last. They won't survive. So you learned a lesson about you can go in there and help, but you really can't tell them how to live life because they, they know from experience what, what to expect and what not to expect. Wow. That is <laughs> yeah. dynamic. That's so yeah. crazy. Oh, but it is you, crazy. I think you took from what I and I'm jumping here, but you might you might agree or you might say no. What you learned there, what you saw there, the way that the government worked there, did that have any role in your deciding to be a government um, official, if you were, yeah. or serving in the government in, in your place now? It did. First of all, it made me appreciate our government and our way, of, even though we got a long way to go to make it, it's not perfect by any means, but we still are a democracy and we still have a chance to make our voices heard, whereas over in there, they don't. Uh, so yeah, so in my little way here in Grand Lake, population 500 full-time residents, um, I felt that, you know, I'd, I'd like to give back. I'd like to give people a voice, uh, whether they agree with me or not. You know, I, I'll, I listen to my constituents and, and vote my heart and, and at least, yeah, give them a voice that they wouldn't have and, and maybe tell them about issues that are coming up that they wouldn't be aware of. So, yeah, so that in the back of my head, uh, being constrained like that over there and seeing how the people had no power at all. You know, you were just fending for yourself over there. Uh, yeah, that in a way kind of got me involved in, in local politics. And, and But again, the biggest thing here is that I loved Grand Lake so, for so many years. I just wanted to give back and, and there was an opportunity and um, it's it's been rewarding. Well, I want to ask you a politician question and literally Ooh. this popped <laughs> in my head yesterday. It popped in okay. my head yesterday. I was thinking about, or maybe it was even early this morning. I think it was early this morning. I was thinking about our governor here in Colorado. He mm -hmm. happens to be, his name is, is Polis, Jared for Polis. people who aren't, mm -hmm. who aren't listening or who don't know us from, right. uh, from anybody. And he has, you know, he's a, a Democrat and has Democratic views versus a Republican that would have Republican views. Right. And I, it brought me to thinking there, there are states that are doing COVID differently than Colorado, right? Some of them are more open, some of them are less open. And a, a governor has to make a call based on whatever he or she feels is there. Just like a, you know, just like a mayor, the president, or a city council person, they all have to make calls for the people they represent. And what was running through my mind early this morning was if I had a chance to speak with the governor, and I said, man, just tell me where you're coming up with this, because you have to make a call for me that I have absolutely no power over and I don't agree with necessarily. How do you do that? So now because you are doing the same thing, Ernie, do you have to weigh the balances of both sides because you have your what you believe oh, yeah. is best. Yeah. But how do you go about navigating those, well, making those decisions that affect people's lives? 
same as I did in journalism. I, I researched a lot and I would talk to a lot of people. Like if I was in governor's position, I, and I know he did, he's done this. I mean, you talk to the scientists, you talk to the health departments, you talk to the business people who are being affected by all this. And you gather a lot of information from all sides. But then, as Truman said, the buck stops here. And you've got to make that decision whether to, you know, strict regulations because of COVID or opening it up again. Uh, I think in the next month or so, us as a town council here have to vote on whether Grand Lake is still going to mandate mass or um, not. And so, yeah, so they're tough decisions. But I, I think because you do a lot of research, uh, again, everybody keeps yelling, you know, you got to listen to the science and all this. Uh, and but you also got to listen to the economists and how it's affecting people in your state and businesses and jobs. Uh, you have to gather all that. But then it comes down to you to make that decision. And yes. again, it may not be popular, maybe uh, very popular, maybe unpopular, but you're the one in that position. And, you know, you'll be down in history as as either right or wrong. Oh, that is good, man. Yeah. Ernie, you have given so much of yourself to all of us through the decade. You've oh, given so no. much to our listeners today. I want to ask you one final question, and it's this. Sure. Has there been one piece of advice that you've been given that has made the most difference or had the biggest impact in your life? Or have you learned something along the way that would now be that piece of advice that you would share with, with not only myself, but all of our listeners? Yeah. Uh, one thing, uh, again, coming from where I came from, um, no matter how high you climb the ladder, there's always somebody right behind you that needs help getting up to that next rung. And I've always believed that, that there's always somebody there who needs your help. And no matter what that help is, they need it. And uh, don't ever, you know, snuff your nose up at them and say, I can't help you. Always look for that guy behind you, that woman behind you on the next rung, who's also trying to climb the same ladder as you are. Give them a helping hand. That is brilliant. Well, my friend, I know you have more energy and pizzazz <laughs> and pop than almost anybody I know. And man, whatever you're doing, keep doing it. Keep saving yourself for all of us. Keep taking care of business. I and, will. And I wish you nothing but success. Can, can, I, can I plug? Sure. MD? Yeah, I, of course. I, I've been on a regimen for two years now because of Dr. Ramos with FitMD. And... Uh, it's unbelievable. You get these blood tests in the very beginning. You find out what's wrong with your body or what's right with your body. And I've been on a regimen for two years. I just turned 70. And, and people go, you're 70? And I said, I don't feel it. I feel like I'm 50. So I want to thank Dr. Ramos. Thank you, Jim, for the opportunity to uh, participate in that program. And again, muscle tone, everything is working like I'm, hell, 40 years old. Nice. <laughs> so thank you. Thank you. No, it, it, that's my pleasure. And Thank you for the time. I wish you continued success and blessings. Oh, thank you. You and I are going to be uh, having our, our rod tips bent by beautiful trout here in the next little bit. I love that. I love that idea, and I love that optimism that they're going to be bending over. <laughs> All right. Well, you take care, my friend. We'll speak with Jim, you soon. Thank you so much, and thanks, everybody, for listening. I love everybody, and uh, I've had a blessed life. I have no complaints. But I, as I always say, if I die tomorrow, I'll be really angry because I'm enjoying life too much. <laughs> Amen to that. Well, you take yeah. care, my brother. All right, buddy. Thank you, Jim. Appreciate it. My pleasure. Thanks.